0: Hello and welcome back to Tour Guide Tales brought to you by Visit Scotland. I'm Grant Stott and each week I'll speak to a different tour guide to hear the eclectic and often incredible rich history of Scotland through their knowledge, stories and experiences. Today I'll be speaking to Lara Thomason. Lara has lived on Shetland all her life and now takes great pride in taking tourists around the beautiful and rugged islands. With a diverse range of things to see and learn about, from the amazing wildlife to the wild nights of the Uphelia Viking Fire Festival, let's join Lara for some more tour guide tales. Lara, Welcome to Tour Guide Tales. I'm always intrigued, and I think it's always very interesting when we have these chats with uh, with people like yourselves. How they, shall we say, came to to get the knowledge about the particular area or the, uh, the the part of Scotland that they're familiar with. But for you, Shetland has been your life, hasn't it?
1: Yes, I'm a born and bred Shetlander. My grandparents, great grandparents, mother, father, brothers, sisters all uh, lived here all our life. So, um, you no, know, just about every corner of the island and been all over it, and all its history and many stories to follow,
0: so it's something that you've you've grown up with and and you mentioned you know you grew up here your your family grew up there as well, and you were working for the family business, which was car and bicycle hire, so was that the kind of was that your foot in the door and sort of thought, well, you know what people are coming to hire cars- ca- hiring bikes. I've got these stories was that kind of how it all happened?
1: yeah, being in the family business for Oh, well over 25 years, working with tourists every single day and and watching how Shetland has progressed with tourism over the years made me more and more interested in showing people around the island and always telling them, you know, when they hire a car, where the best places to go and visit would be and, you know, give them a good cross-section of the island. And that just made me more and more interested in wanting to learn more about the island. So I did the tour guide and green badge guide in 2016 and it was amazing how much more i did learn from that course and uh found it very very useful and therefore started tour guiding also
0: it was interesting you said that you you know you've seen how shetland had, had changed and evolved over 20 years give us a give us an overview of that give us an idea of what it used to be like compared to how it is now
1: well when i first started with the car hires then um it was generally people coming up here for mostly the bird watching and really to get up here it's quite remote so you've got a 14-hour ferry journey or quite an expensive one-hour flight from the mainland of Scotland and it wasn't really you know in the limelight for the for a place to visit uh, in the world but as we became more and more um, how would you say prominent on TV and radio and and advertising marketing throughout Shetland people realized what we had to offer and uh, many cruises started in the PO ferries and more cruise ships started coming. Uh, last year, we had oh, well over 120. So we've been put more and more on the map each year, bringing more and more people t- to Shetland and making them aware of what we have to offer. So I've seen a huge, huge increase in tourism over the years. And
0: Shetland really does have a lot to offer. You touched on the, the birdwatching aspect. The wildlife is is <laughs> huge, which we will get to. But before we get to that... um. Lara, give us give us a kind of a little brief sort of history and, and geography of Shetland. First of all, give us an idea if we're looking at the map of Scotland, where would we where would we see Shetland? And also, I think what's also important about the history, the geography of Shetland, just how close it is to Norway.
1: Yes, uh, Shetland is the most most northerly islands in the British Isles. So we're about two hundred miles from uh, Aberdeen, uh, the mainland of Scotland, but we're actually nearer. Uh, Norway. We're directly opposite. Our main town, Lerwick, is directly opposite Bergen in Norway. And we find this quite significant because we used to belong to Denmark and Norway up until 1469. And what happened then was um, King Christian of Norway and Denmark, his um, daughter, Princess Margaret, was to marry James III of Scotland. And uh, he didn't have enough money for the wedding, so he gave Shetland and Orkney away uh, as a dowry. So we were given away to Scotland way back in 1469. That's when we became Scottish, but our heritage is very much Viking, very much um, Norse, uh, our language, our place names, many things comes from the, the Norse connection that we had. So we're so far north, we're ne- but slightly nearer Norway as we are Scotland, and therefore many people here still class themselves as more Norwegian as Scottish. Yeah I was going to say
0: what do you what do you class yourself as Lara Scottish Norwegian or a bit of both
1: <laughs> I class myself as a bit of both cuz I wouldn't like to offend anybody but <laughs> 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 and the history is quite different it does change quite a lot throughout the years from the norwegian connection through to the scottish connection so it's both very interesting
0: yeah that that's very much part of uh, of of Shetland that that strong viking heritage that you you yeah. touched on there and there there's a lot of that celebrated throughout the year again uh, we're going to touch on that but I also want to just briefly mention how important Shetland was uh, for Norway in World War 2
1: Yes uh, Shetland had this um clandestine operation between occupied Norway uh, and Shetland during World War II called the Shetland Bus and it wasn't a bus as in it has wheels and drives on the road it was hmm. it was an operation which involved um fishing boats taking uh, refugees and specialized equipment back and forth between norway and shetland um it was quite significant in the war effort it um definitely helped uh, the war effort in norway uh, it was a very dangerous mission whereas whereupon norwegian fishermen would travel in the dead of winter uh, you know, really really bad seas, the North Sea uh, through the darkness um, trying to avoid enemy fire and, you know, enemy boats come into the huge vast coastline in Norway and collect refugees and put in specialised equipment for them to help fight the cause this Shetland bus was located on the west side of Shetland just so that, of, you know, you could never really find it, it would make more sense for it to be on the east side, it would be quicker to get over to Norway but they had it in the our old capital called Scalaway on the east side. And that village there celebrates the Shetland bus every year. It has a commemorative, um, what do you call it? Uh, I'm lost my words, memorial, where they've got a stone from each uh, village in Norway where people were rescued or lost their lives. And uh, all the names of the fishing boats and the men that was lost at sea and we've had many visits from Queen Sonja here, who recognises how important the we were in the war uh, effort. And therefore, this has given us really strong connections still with Norway. Uh, that the town there is very Norwegian-looking. It has Norwegian-looking buildings, and many of the men who came here ended up marrying Shetlanders. So there the link continues. Uh, so, yeah, the Shetland bus, uh, there's so much I can tell you about the Shetland bus, it would take about five hours, but it's... <laughs> very interesting stories that um came yeah, out of it
0: i bet, yeah. I bet. And, and as well as the the, the memorial that, that you touched on mm-hmm. uh, annually there's also a museum i believe in, in scalloway which uh, yes which we have continues a, to keep the, the story
1: yes we have the wonderful museum called the scalloway museum and it uh it's, you know, general things in it. It's built right next door to the Scalowa Castle, which was built by uh, Earl Patrick Stewart in, in the early 1600s. But the most of the museum is dedicated to the Shetland bus and all its um, interests and stories, all the uh, men who who travelled back and forth from Shetland, how many people they saved, what they brought with them. It has all the, the tools and equipment that they used and it has many books you can buy on the subject um it just really is one of those stories whereupon uh it was so secretive that not even anyone knew about it in britain until after the war was finished so they were all heroes but they were never celebrated as heroes at the time because so it was all such a secret
0: Oh, and you can you can find out all about the, the, these these individuals at the museum
1: yeah yeah very interesting place to visit and if you come up here i'll show you around I might hold you to
0: that. Yeah, I may well hold you to that, Laura. Uh, there, but there is so much to try and squeeze into a little podcast yeah. like this. We're going to try and um, do as much as we can over the, the time that we have together. Um, but we, we should also talk about one of the most significant celebrations that Shetland is famous for, and that's Up Helly yeah. Aa. Um, this is this is huge and has been for for many many years. Give us an overview of this. What what, what does this involve?
1: Well, Ophelia sort of celebrates the turn of our winter. It's always held in the last Tuesday in January, and it's only ever been cancelled once. That was for Sir Winston Churchill's funeral. And, of course, it's going to be cancelled again this due to the coronavirus. But um, it's been a it's been going on for over 100 years. And what we uh, do here is we uh, nominate a geyser Jarl, which is a man who will lead... Peliapacet procession and he will invite into his squad of Vikings 60 other uh, guests. Now what they do is they take all their local resources um, leather, metals woods and they make their own Viking suits, replica Viking suits. These take a great deal of detail, many skilled men to build them, to make them and each of these men will be carrying an axe and a shield and they will be joined on on the last Tuesday in January to march around the streets of Lerwick with a galley boat. So we, it's a boat built good enough to sail in the sea. That takes a year to build this um, Viking longship, and they tow this Viking longship around the town and visit many uh, schools and care homes and hospitals and what have you. And then in the night time is when the celebrations really start. There is a biggest fire festival in Europe is held. So these sixty Vikings are then joined by about 900 geysers, and these geysers are squads of 30 to 40 men, all dressed up in topical outfits. Could be something on the telly, making full of a local politician, or you know, a little um, sketch from something that's going on in Shetland. And these men will dress up in various different suits, and they'll all carry a burning torch, and at 7 o'clock the light-up begins, all the lights is put off in Lerwick, and they march uh, through all the streets in our main town uh, watched by thousands and thousands of spectators it has really become a a big tourist attraction also and they pull this Viking longship or galley boat into the centre of the town into a, our local plane park and the torches then get thrown into the galley and it's burnt to the ground it's very difficult to explain it because there's so much smells involved and noise and roaring and you know it's, it's windy and there's fire burning everywhere and the smell of paraffin coming off the torches. So after the procession, that's when the celebrations truly begin. All the women and children and um, the music and the the drums will be in each venue around Lerwick. There's about 14 venues and each of these squads will travel from venue to venue throughout the night from about nine o'clock in the evening until nine o'clock in the morning and where they will do a little act in front of the audience, and then have a dance. And this will go on for, well, basically all night. And then it's Tibet for a couple of hours, and then it's up again for Hop Day, and the whole of Shetland has a big holiday for Opelia. So it's quite a recognized... Because I was going to say, how many days in total does it last? Well, the the Opelia season starts in January and finishes in March, so... (laughs) Because right. we have uh, we have smaller ones, <laughs> yeah, we have smaller ones out um, out Lyon and little and other to- uh, other villages and islands. But the the Lerwick one itself starts Tuesday morning first thing, and it'll not finish until Thursday. But you have to remember all these the making of up here, especially the Viking squad, which is the Geyser that selected fifteen years in advance. So he has fifteen yeah, just... years preparation before he becomes the Jarl and receives the key of the town.
0: So he's elected fifteen years before he actually yeah. gets yeah. gets the role, and that fifteen years is spent preparing, building, creating, yes. making.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, then you have this one condensed year where all the suits and everything has to come together. So it's it's, it's excellent for um, keeping people together through the winter time. It's a very good community, uh, big community involvement. Uh, you know they're having to meet every week to discuss what they're making and and get together in many workshops and make things. So it's, it's really good to get you through this dark winter nights that we have up here, because at the moment it's pitch black dark and it's only three thirty.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, I can <laughs> yeah.
0: imagine. I can imagine, and it's interesting you say it's it's obviously a very important for the community, but are, are visitors welcome to
1: to join in? Yes, visitors are very welcome. And we have um, many people who arrive from all over the world to come to the, to the Viking Fire Festival up here. And um, if you're lucky enough to get accepted into one of the venues, we do have our tourist office here. There is tickets that's put there specifically for tourists to come along and try to get into the nighttime event also. But the daytime event does last 14 hours. So there's plenty to see and do throughout the, the Tuesday also, throughout the day it's a wonderful event i can't really explain it very well on a on a mm-hmm. on a podcast but uh i think you'll just have to come and see it for yourself
0: absolutely it sounds yeah. incredible i was just trying to think what what would you know some of the foreign visitors what, what do they make of it when you know i can imagine the faces would be a picture especially with all this the
1: fire that's going on in the images oh, that we see in the in the ship it is just like uh, watching the game of thrones or something it is just fire <laughs> Wind, water, <laughs> it's just, it is just, um, yeah, quite crazy. And I don't think I've ever witnessed anything anywhere else in the world. And when the visitors arrive, they're just buzzing. It's just excitement going through the town. Right from the very early hours they start, they start about seven o'clock in the morning. So there's just an excitement the whole day in Larwick.
0: Many people say in Scotland that uh, New Year is is much bigger an event than, than Christmas. And in normal times, perhaps that is the case. But how would you see Ophelia affairs up there in Shetland? Is is that bigger than than New Year, bigger than Christmas?
1: Yes, Uphelia truly is our uh, most celebrated event up here in the island. Um, New Year, I think, is more for Scottish people. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Diplomatically said, as always, Lara. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, the Viking celebration we have is really where our roots lie, and I think that's why there is so much enthusiasm for it.
0: Well, I am absolutely sold, and uh, as mm-hmm. soon as these um, restrictions ease, then I'm certainly got this on my to do list. Definitely, yes, um, I like I like a long party, so I do. So that sounds like perfect for me.
1: Yeah, it's almost like an endurance test if you're a lady and have to dance every single dance. Uh, your feet, oh, whew. yeah, <laughs>
0: You can hardly walk. I'll bring, I'll, yeah, I'll make sure I've got the blister <laughs> plasters and the party yeah. feet with me. I'll, I'll be yeah. ready. Um right up here yeah uh, one huge aspect of of, of Shetland but let's let's also talk about St Ninian's Isle. Um, oh, yes, uh-huh. This is this is this is fascinating because this is, this takes us back to 1950 a team of archaeologists came and they came to uncover un- a, a famous chapel site and then well I'll, I'll let you pick up the story.
1: Yeah um St Ninian's Isle is a I'll have to explain it it's a, it's a beautiful island that's joined by a sand tombola so it's the, it's the largest embola in the UK. So it's a beautiful white strip of sand that joins you on to the St Ninian's Isle. And on this island was a 12th century chapel that was built there by St Ninian. And uh, this team of archaeologists came to Shetland in 1958 uh, to try to, you know, uncover this chapel and see what treasures they could find. A schoolboy called Douglas Coats who um, asked if he could help. He was only 15 years old and he was at the school and he asked if he could help the archaeologists joined the dig and they, you know, sort of stuffed them in a corner and said, just dig over there out of the way. And within one hour, he uncovered this wooden box and in it was one of the greatest finds in history. It was 28 pieces of uh, silver, uh, one of the greatest treasure finds in history. It was so uh, valuable and so important that it's actually found in the Edinburgh Museum now and we only have replicas up here. But this 28 pieces of silver dated back to the Pictish era from the 8th century. And uh, we think what happened was when the Vikings started raiding the islands about 1,200 years ago, we think that the Pictish people must have buried this to hide it from the Vikings. And of course, you know, as time goes on and sand and soil moves and things get robbed and other things built, then when the St. Ninian came along, he would have just built, happened to have built on the correct spot where they happened to be digging uh, on that archaeological dig, so the St Ninian's Isle treasure is a really beautiful set of brooches and, and pins and things like that. And if you go along the Edinburgh Museum, you'll be able to have a look and see what they are for real.
0: And I, and I must ask how Douglas Coots that has four, 15 years old at the time, um, is he is he still around now? Is he still you know a bit of a local hero?
1: Yeah, Douglas is a very humble, uh, quiet man. He's always cycling through the town on his push on his bike. He never really made a big fuss about what he found. He just was interested, you know, in archaeology. And he did know his find was of great significance, but he was very happy to donate it to, you know, the to the museum. And uh, he's done many interviews and TV programmes since, but he doesn't feel like he did anything amazing, he just feels he happened to be a young boy digging at the correct time.
0: I always used to wonder if some, you know, you hear the tales of people finding buried treasure and then, you know, sell it and, you know, make a fortune and and become rich. But this has not been the case for Douglas. He's quite happy to just hand it all over and and let the the story be told.
1: Yes, let the story be told. And um, he's, you know, he's lived in Shetland all his life. He's only interested in what Shetland uh, has and and and. To offer and the wildlife and the history and archaeology, so he's just really in, interested in Shetland and what it has to offer. Quite happy to let Edinburgh look after it.
0: Well, wow, that's wonderful. Ooh. And before we leave St Ninian's Isle, Lara, I have to ask: uh, Halloween is quite significant in that part of Shetland um, because the the local children get sent across the beach to try and find a bone.
1: Give us more there. Yeah, well, in the a long time ago, then the children would run across from the mainland and you'd get dared to run across and find a, a bone on St. Ninian's Isle because there was many people buried there in the olden days, times gone past when, you know, when there was no Christian burials. So there's actually many bone. the island of bones is one of the names that was once called. And yeah, you might come back with a bone, but you really don't know if it was maybe a cow, a sheep or a human bone.
0: <laughs> is, it, is that it's very macabre. That you, you've
1: done? <laughs> did, you, did you ever do it in your youth? Yeah, we did it the... I think my brothers dared me when I was very, very young.
0: But yeah. <laughs> did you find a bone? I need to you know.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe best. It's maybe best, best not the to the know, I think.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Lara, uh, what about Lerwick? That—that's you know the the only town in on the whole island as well. How 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 big a population do you have there?
1: Well, the population of Lerwick—it's yes—it's our only town in on the island. Um, it's about uh, nine thousand people. And it's situated on the east side of, of the mainland of Shetland. The old capital used to be Scalway on the east side. But what happened was the Hanseatic trade, the Dutch heron era came here. And because we have this island of Bresse that shelters our harbour, we have a very natural deep harbour, it seemed to be the logical place for boats to start trading and um, sheltering and things like that. So the town of Lerwick really started building up on the herring trade.
0: So that got it to the status it is now. Yes. Uh, so built on the on the on the herring trade as you say. But then it's, shall we say, status grew even more because of a certain book and TV series.
1: Yeah, we have these famous Loudberry. So um a Loudberry is actually a, a trading booth. So what was originally built in Lerwick was these trading booths or these piers were built into the sea where the boats would, you know, bring their goods ashore. These trading booths were then turned into, these piers, sorry, were then turned into trading booths called Lloydberries and built in the 17th century. So we have many houses in Lerwick built into the sea. They're quite um, special, actually. And one of them is called Lloydberry, actually, which actually belonged to my auntie Muriel and my uncle Tammy. And their house was used in the BBC series Jimmy Perez. I don't know, it's called Shetland, and they've done about five cities now. It's been a really famous programme being aired all over the world, which has made our tourism go um, completely crazy this last couple of years. And they use the famous house, Laudbury, as Jimmy Perez's house. So, but this house has been famous for many other reasons before that, but now it's certainly on the map. It's probably the most photographed house in the world at the moment, I think. It certainly is. What, what other
0: uh, reasons for being famous uh, are there for this house?
1: Well, this house, be, being built, be, being so old and being built in the sea, it has the original loading stone um, right along its own private beach, which right next to the house. The Viking name for that is Fladbjerg. As you can see, the original Viking pier there, when you look over the wall, and also the boats that came in with their goods, they had many tunnels that ran under the main roads there, so they would smuggle, you know, the, the brandy and the tobacco underneath and Put the proper goods up over the top. There's many smugglers' tunnels around there also, and because it's so unusual to have your, you know, your house built into the North Sea where the sea is crashing over the roof, it's been visited by many people all over the world, dignitaries from all over. And my auntie Muriel used to keep a, a log book of everyone who visited, and there was some very famous people that's been in there. The the house is quite quite interesting because it has you know these windows in the top gable where the wind will blow through. That's where you'd hang your fish to dry and it has a derrick coming down over the front where that's where the goods would have been winched up and you know when you're actually living in the house you can go right down under right down under where the sea is into the workshops below and they flood it's just so interesting to, to live there very difficult place to live because you've got to try and keep it dry and secure the whole time but great fun jumping out the the front window into the sea and swimming around in the summertime great place to play uh Learning to swim in eight degrees
0: water—it's super. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I'm yeah. getting cold just thinking about it.
1: Yeah. Well, we have many of these larderies dotted all over Larry. The, the the main one is Jimmy Perez's house.
0: Well, that, that's it's fascinating that it's it's being utilised and then you know being enjoyed again in, in such a, a a public way through the through the books and, and the the TV series Shetland, as you say. But some people might think that that could be a bit intrusive when when a big TV and film crew come to town, because they do, you know, film there and they do kind of take over. How how's that been for the locals there?
1: I think the Shetland series uh, has absolutely been wonderful. They've never taken over anything. They've been very, um, you know, polite in everything they've done. They've, they've uh, you know, asked the right people at the, at the right times and they've, if they've had to film them on a road, they've they've closed the road at, at, at times that suits the locals. They've included the locals in every single series. You'll find just about everyone in, Shetland has been in one of the series <laughs> as an extra. <laughs> so it's quite exciting when they arrive in town and really nice, the whole, uh, all the production team and the directors all very nice. We also have, of course, our very own Shetland star. Sandy the Detective is our very own local Shetlander.
0: And Lerwick, um, it's got an original Viking pier, which, how far does this go back? 1,200 years? I've got my notes here.
1: Yeah, the the original Loudenstone is right next to the Lordbury. You can still see it. That it's it's like a big flat stone where he would have, you know, taken their Viking longships along. And it's called Fladbjerg, in in Viking terms.
0: Well, there, really, there really is a lot to see. And, and you know, so far we're just talking about places to visit and and uh, things to go and look at on on Shetland. But we should also touch on something that you mentioned that, that Shetland was famous for for many years. It was the wildlife and the, and the bird watching. Um, and well, let, let, let's talk about the the ponies which uh, the shetland ponies are are famous the world over I, I guess but but give us an idea of how many you can see and and how important they are to the local community
1: okay yes the wildlife in shetland is just unbelievable the lord berries that we were just talking about there's many otters around there we've had orcas swimming right you know, right past the front of the, uh, the main town here shetland ponies are everywhere on the island we um have quite high numbers of them. We, we now protect our breed of Shetland ponies so they don't get too large. They have to be between 28 inches and 42 inches. Anything bigger as that is not a Shetland pony. So the Shetland pony, you know, has obviously been here as our main form of transport for hundreds of years, and they would be being used on the crofts, which is a small farm, Scottish word, uh, around Shetland in the olden days to carry all the goods to market and plough the fields and things like that. Shetland pony being so useful because it it is very strong. It has a, it's quite short legs and a sturdy body, but it can pull twice its body weight and carry as much. So that's why they've been so useful. And they were first found 3,000 years ago in a dig down at Jarlshof on the south end of the island. The first Shetland pony bone was found there. So we claim them as our own because we've never really heard of them anywhere else in the world
0: because yeah, they are totally unique to to Shetland, aren't they?
1: Yeah, unique. They're unique in lots of ways too. They have um, they're very hardy, so they can weather out all year round. They have the special guard hair on their coats, which keeps them warm in the winter. So you could you know you could put your fingers in a Shetland pony coat, and you can't quite reach the skin. So they you know they keep themselves very warm in the winter time. They have really thick manes and tails, goes nearly to the ground. And this again protects them from the elements up here. You often to find them sheltered in a, a little peak bank, you know, with their bum to the wind. That's how you find a Shetland pony. But we have beautiful ponies around the island. They're all they're made from beautiful colours, all different colours, and um, they're quite bad tempered though. Sometimes They would give you a good nip if you came too near them. So you have to be careful.
0: And as you say, quite hardy. Um, in the 1950s, England took a lot of them for uh, for coal mines.
1: Yeah, the, the, especially the black breed, they were taken from Shetland because they were so handy at going into the the small entrances in mines in England and they could, you know, t- pull and carry lots of coal. So we lost a lot of ponies in the in the 50s and therefore that's when we decided we'd have to protect our breed up here. And we have, you know, a hundred studs on the island now and they all have to have their own passports and, you know, what have you. So the the breed is well protected now. You wouldn't be allowed to be used for anything like that anymore. And is it,
0: you know, you you mentioned there are are hundreds of them to be seen across the island. Is it something that many people, you know, have, they have their own ponies, they have their own Shetland ponies?
1: Yes, oh my goodness, every young girl in the world wants a Shetland pony. It's the first thing you learn to ride uh, when you're younger. The most difficult things to learn on too. So if you can ride a Shetland pony, you could probably ride a, a thoroughbred in the Grand National. So, yes, um, everybody has a pony. Well, not everybody has a pony, but anyone who has a a bit of land, usually you'd find a pony somewhere on their croft or, you know, if they have a young daughter, they'll definitely have a Shetland pony. I once bought 12 at the pony sales with my pocket money. (laughs) You bought 12? Yeah, my father wasn't very pleased when I came home with them all tied together. (laughs) I had to put put 10 of them back. I I hope you had a lot of land. I hope you had a lot of land to put them on. No, I lived in Lerwick with a tiny front garden, so he was really quite annoyed at me, yeah. (laughs) Can you remember how much you paid for them? I think I paid 50 pence each. (laughs) Wow. I remember saving up for a long time to buy them. (laughs) And I couldn't decide between, when they came in the sales, I couldn't decide which one I liked, so I just kept buying them one after the other.
0: (laughs) I can just imagine your father's (laughs) face. Yeah. Dad, Dad, see what I've come home with twelve Shetland ponies on a rope.
1: They're a bit more expensive now. We wouldn't be able to pay for twelve now.
0: <laughs> no, it's no. Not. Um, Lara, it's very fitting that, that we're talking to you in Shetland as we're you know embracing the year of coasts and waters. Um which which you know perhaps this is a great example of, of what this uh, celebration is all about given what you can see in Shetland around the coasts and in the waters there. You know, we we touched on what you can see with the otters uh, down by the coast, but also you 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 can boast that you can see whales, basking oh, sharks, yes. dolphins as well. Uh, it's it, it, You know, it's, you've got such a rich, you know, wildlife out there.
1: Yeah, we've been very lucky with the whales, particularly this year. I think it's because they have their own Facebook page now, so you can follow them a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely. Oh, the typing skills! <laughs> yeah, they always tell you where they are in Shetland now. But we've been very lucky with we've seen quite well. I've, I've actually managed myself to see three times the humpback whales around Shetland. They're just so majestic to watch. Um, humpback whales, you can't believe the size of them until you're you're quite up close to them. Minke whales, dolphins, going through the harbour here, the orcas specifically. Are, we have a. a Pod twenty seven they're called, and they've been going around the island pr- pretty much the whole year now, and you know people are getting to know them quite well. So they're coming right into the the to the Vos here, right, you know, right into the beaches. So you can see them really up close. You can you can nearly be, be within a few feet of them if you're standing on the shore. So it really is quite amazing to watch the orcas. So why
0: you're part of the world then? What what attracts the the whales?
1: The whales. We have the Gulf Stream that runs past us. You know, it comes over from America, which gives keeps our water that slightly bit warmer. And this is which brings the mackerel and the heron, You know, past our island. That's why we're fishing. is is so abundant up here. And this brings you know many big whales to come and eat the mackerel and the herring, and also the orcas. We have a lot of big seal population in Shetland, so they come to feed on the seals also.
0: So, are you encouraged? That are there uh, boat trips that you can go on when you when you come to visit Shetland to, to get a closer look?
1: Yeah, it really is, you know, a bit of potluck, but we have quite a lot of uh, uh, sea boats down here in the harbour, sea cruises that'll take you around the island of bresse which is just next door to, to the, the main town here in Lerwick. Take you right around the back of these huge sea cliffs where there's, um, the, the big bird colonies are, uh, the gannets or the solons, as we call them, and... You know, hundreds of feet high of cliffs of seabirds everywhere, and we have the famous puffin. We call them the Taminori, you know, that nests in the very tops of the cliffs and they're here from May May till about August. And if you're lucky when you're out seeing all that, if that's not enough for you, then um you might be lucky enough to be in the presence of, of some whales also. And and that does make the ultimate tourist trip out when you manage to I spot can one absolutely of those. Imagine. Yeah. And,
0: and- and and you know you mentioned the puffins there, and you know this takes us right back to the start of our chat. You know it, it, it's a it's a haven for for bird watchers. So yeah, so there's a great range of species of of birds as well.
1: Yeah, the the seabirds um, are in huge abundance up here. You know, at least from the very bottom of the cliffs, they nest right up to the, to the very top. The you can. Go to the south end of the island and be standing within a few feet at the top of the cliffs down there, and, and you're just so near the beautiful colours of the puffins. You can you can see their behaviours. You can see them going in and out their nests, see them feeding, and then we also have the the birds who migrate from the Arctic Circle and they may come here to rest on their way to warmer climes. So many of these avid bird watchers, where they have you know a big list to tick, we have some very unusual and rare birds which land here throughout the year. Uh, which brings a lot of interest too. We've just had a famous warbler up. I can't remember the name of it, but that had a big, huge influx of Bird Watchers again just recently. It's it's
0: it's been fascinating talking to you, Lara, and there's clearly so much to, to sort of take in and, and, and I hope, you know, those listening to the podcast will, will just get a, a tiny flavour of, of what is on offer at Shetland up up there. Um but if I was to you know, either take take the car and the ferry, or, or an expensive flight to to join you. When obviously restrictions ease, um, what would what would you say would be the best amount of time to to allow to to really get a sort of flavour of Shetland to to get a good a good feeling for everything that's there?
1: I think you need about twenty years.
0: I'm putting for my holidays now.
1: (laughs) No, if you were wanting to come, you know, for I know people nowadays have such busy lifestyles, but I definitely think you need to spend at least seven days in Shetland to to get a good cross section of the whole island because the north is so different from the south. The north is very volcanic. The geology up there is just beautiful. It's very red. Lots of granite. Um, and then you have the the south with the sandy white beaches and all the, the birds. And then you have the west with the hundred. We have 100 outlying islands around the mainland and you can see them all for miles. And then we have the very tip, the island of Unst, where um, we have the most northerly night lighthouse in Britain. And just full of Viking, you know, settlements and history. And the the, the whole island is just amazing
0: and in your time as a a tour guide lad and all the the interesting people that have come to to shetland to to hear your tour guide tales is is there a a moment that really stands out for you or or an individual or or a a visitor that that came to visit shetland and 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 does something special happen something unique
1: yeah well i've had quite a few of those actually you know because you never know what's going to happen a day in shetland um I did have a a couple of really nice uh, ladies who were not very able on their feet. And I took them over to the island of Musa, which is where there's a 13 metre high um, Iron Age broch. That's another story. Anyway, it's one of the uh, highest ones standing in the world. And we took them around there and I was walking them around the island. And they weren't really very able for for the whole trip. So they were just delighted when this two huge orcas came right beside the the island right alongside the rocks. I managed to get them onto a rock, and we sat for a whole hour and just watched these whales and they They thanked me for not having to walk any further <laughs> 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 and for putting on a really nice show but oh there's there's so many things that's um happened
0: but i guess I guess something like that Lara, when something like that happened. It would it would take your breath away as well, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I just find my job just the best job in the world, and things like that happen, and everything goes smoothly. You know, it's very difficult when someone says, "Let's go and see otters," and you can't predict where they're going to be, or if you're going to see them. But when it all comes together, when a good plan comes together, then it's excellent. You know, if if someone's only got a limited time, and you can actually fill in what they actually want to see, and you've actually managed to achieve that, it's quite satisfying. And and I guess Shetland would
0: would offer, you know, different things to enjoy at different times of the year. Um, you know, given you know the, the hours of daylight that you have uh, in the winter, but it's the sort of place you could probably visit at any time. That there would be there would be something to take in no matter what the no matter what the uh, month.
1: Yeah, I feel if you were visiting the island, uh, up as is a huge pool because that is a winter activity. But the best times to come is when it's pretty much daylight all day. May, June, and July is when you can you can explore so much more of the island when it's when it's bright daylight and see so much more things. And that is the most popular months of the year. And of course it's a little bit warmer. It might even get up to about sixteen degrees. Oof. It's almost (laughs) tropical. (laughs) Yeah, well actually this last summer we've had it pretty good. It was I think we had twenty-one degrees one day. It's like being in Majorca.
0: Well, there you are, Shetland, twinned with Mallorca. I can see that happening before.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, Lara, it's been absolutely wonderful, fascinating talking to you. And uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I have I have been up to Lerwick. It's a place I have visited, and it is absolutely stunning up there. I didn't spend anywhere near enough time, but definitely something to, to make time for in my, in my diary. And I will, I think I think up Helia is something that I need to experience.
1: Yes, sir, you'd be very welcome to get in touch with me, and I'll show you around.
0: I'll hold you to that. Lara, thanks for your time and thanks for joining us on Tour Guide Tales. There you go. Another fascinating episode with Shetland Tour Guide Lara Thomason. If you haven't already, please have a listen back to the other fascinating episodes within this series and tune in for our next episode where I'll be speaking to another... Of Scotland's brilliant tour guides. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. I'm Grant Stott, and you've been listening to another Tour Guide Tales, brought to you by Visit Scotland.